Global News reporting today that a rapid test importer landed an estimated $2 billion in federal contracts in 2021 and 2022, despite giving regulators incomplete data about its product's accuracy. Uh, to help us with this story is online correspondent for the investigative unit at Global National, Patty Sontag. Patty, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and I don't imagine a story like this comes together overnight. How long have you been working on this? Uh, well, I started working on federal procurement uh, 18 months ago and this story about a year ago. Uh, how did you get wind of it or, or how did this come about? Uh, it was a, a really slow process. So I got a, a tip uh, from a Canadian uh, rapid test manufacturer asking, so why is it that, that Canadian com- uh, manufacturers haven't been getting contracts? He was just kind of puzzled. But I decided to take a look, and uh, I heard uh, from various experts that um, there hadn't been much vetting of um, the contractors during the, you know, the chaos of the pandemic. So I just ran standard background checks on anybody who got a contract in the rapid test sector. And as I did that, questions emerged. And of course, you know, this one company, BTNX, happened to have gotten 404 million, uh, a, a contract for 404 million tests. So of course, you know, a number that big, you look more closely. Um, and as I delved in, I found more and more interesting information, and uh, uh, eventually this brought me to uh, uncovering the two copies of, of the study that were discussed in today's story. And can you walk us uh, through that to the extent that you can, because uh, this was a, a major story online today, and on a lot of our stations we've been covering it, but uh, for those who are unfamiliar with it, what did your investigation find? Um, well, I found two copies of the document, and uh, it wasn't immediately apparent that they were the same study. Um, so uh, I put them through a, a program. I was just doing a standard analysis, and uh, the the analysis showed that actually the data within them was almost entirely identical, um, with some with some changes. And what it showed was that. Um, uh, a Chinese manufacturer had studied, had conducted a study of a COVID test in China very early in the pandemic. Um, and uh, another company, the, the supplier BTNX, uh, gave a study to Health Canada in October 2020 that had 216 samples. So in between the Chinese manufacturer and the and BTNX, um, 132 samples had been removed, which is, you know, scientists will tell you that when you give in a study, um, removing data is considered just not something that is done in in science. It's absolutely verboten. Um, So, uh, of course, I looked a little deeper then. And so the issue is, so we, you know, people obviously were using these uh, to test themselves in many instances uh, during the height of the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, and what what were the, what were we finding with the results of those tests, or what could they be, and what could throw people off? Um, well, the data showed um, if you if you looked at it closely 
Um, so I gathered results from regulators all around the world, eventually uh, focusing on regulators because they all used the same method and they were all testing the same test around the same time. And then I brought that to experts, um, the data that I gathered from the regulators like Germany and Britain, for example, um, and also Health Canada. And they said that what the uh, what regulators around the world had found was that this um, test was really good at detecting, or quite good at detecting um, if if someone was really infectious. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of grades in between being really infectious and not at all infectious. And it was those grades that the test couldn't was not great at detecting, not very good. Um, and uh, one of the experts here in Canada, a, a leading laboratory expert, um, remarked that she, in her assessment, it was uh, not not acceptable. Um, so uh, what it means is that uh, in some cases, the, the test would not detect an infectious case of COVID-19. And when you think about it, in many cases, if we roll the clock back, I mean, those tests were used uh, by many people to, you know, show that they didn't have COVID and were therefore free uh, perhaps to return to work or to visit loved ones. The, the implications could be quite broad here. Yes, they were. I don't think today's story is a happy day for anybody. What are some of the health experts saying about this in response to this report? Um, well, they've asked questions about why this happened and how this happened, and we're uh, we're still delving into that. You know, we've asked questions from Health Canada and from from the companies, and we've presented what we found to the public. Um, and uh, well, generally, the the experts are saying, you know, with the tests that are remaining, um, because a lot of people still have that green box on their shelves. If you get a positive result. You know, trust that, but if you get a negative result, don't trust that. Um, so it's it's a good guideline, I think. Right, and so obviously, given what you just said, it, clearly some of these are still in circulation and people have been relying on them for uh, the last couple of years in some cases. Yeah, for sure. Actually, they're still given out sometimes in, in uh, universities, daycares, um, you know, some some people around even the global office uh, got some just when just at, you know when they were picking up their kids from school this week. So um, they're still out there. And has the government had a response to this? Um, yes, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, responded to global news questions today, and uh, he he said that his government would be exploring it. Uh, Patty, it's an important story and, and some great work. Thank you for joining us and shedding some more light on it uh, this evening. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And we wanted to celebrate the music and the legacy of some incredible artists that we lost this year. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. Some people claim that there's a wall to blame, but I know it's nobody's fault. 
We had to end it with a Christmas song, and we had to end it with what I just think is a, a wonderful Christmas song, uh, Shane McGowan and the Pogs. Uh, we're joined by Eric Alper, music publicist, radio host. Uh, Eric, thanks for coming on the show to, uh, I guess, to look back at, there was some sadness this year for sure uh, with so many iconic music people lost, uh, but also hopefully to celebrate their music uh, and their legacy. So we're glad you could join us tonight. No, I'm happy to do it. And you know what? You you kind of hit it right on the right right on the on the head when, you know, <laughs> you kind of harken back. I mean, let's go back to 1970 for a moment when Jim Morrison passed away in July of 1970. It took a month and a week for news to travel to Rolling Stone magazine to write the obituary. That's just how long it took for news to get back to. North America, if you were across the pond and overseas. Now, when somebody passes away, like any of those amazing artists that you just played, the world finds out at the same time in an instant. And just as quickly, you see the streams start to rise. You see the YouTube numbers go through the roof. You see the album sales happen. It's almost like collectively, we all get to celebrate at the same time the legacy that's left behind by these artists. It's it's pretty amazing. And this year, unfortunately, we lost a lot of really great artists, but we got to celebrate their music, I think, in a more impactful and empowering sort of way, too. Uh, we did. And what's interesting now, of course, and, and I guess at a certain time there might have been fan clubs for different bands or different musicians, but that it would have involved, you know, mailing out newsletters and those sorts of things periodically. Yeah. And as you would say, it would take days or weeks or longer. And now, you know, the day that uh, Robbie Robertson passes away, we can talk to someone who has a podcast devote, devoted to the band and that sort of thing. So there is certainly that immediacy to it. Uh, we've got a, a lot of names that I want to throw out at you tonight and yeah. maybe just get some uh, some anecdotes and some thoughts from you. I, I I don't really know where to start, so maybe the for the start, I'll leave it with you. Was there any one or two that that really hit you this year? Yeah, I think Sinead O'Connor. I, I think hit a lot of people, not only because she was uh, an artist of our own generation, but we all remember that time where she tore up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and was so defiant. Uh, about her views on how things should be and her just constantly beautiful interpretations of songs like Nothing Compared to You, but also 
just the fact that her original music just kind of sparked both admiration and criticism both at the same time. And, you know, she was really young. She was somebody that absolutely should be here. So I think Janetta Connor for me personally, has to be up there. And I also think Gordon Lightfoot, too. I mean, there there really hasn't been a person since probably Gord Downey of the Tragically Hip that really, truly captured the essence of the Canadian landscape and its people and holding up to a mirror to who we all were. And, and Gordon Lightfoot certainly um, hit a lot of people home, too. And I do want to talk about Gordon Lightfoot for sure. Sinead O'Connor, I, I think I don't think it could be overstated how brave that was, uh, her appearance on, on, on television and ripping up that photograph. Um, you know, I mean, A, she was right. Um, and B, it really showed just how sexist the music industry in certain parts of the world really were. Um, you know, she I, I actually ended up working with her for a number of albums in the early 2000, 2010s. And I, I, of course, I got to ask about those moments. And, you know, she said, and it still struck me as so smart about it, is that it you know, a lot of people will say that she ended up destroying her career when she did that. But in fact, she said that it actually freed her from the constraints of, of being a pop artist and working with record labels who were trying to mold her, trying to make her wear dresses and grow out her hair. So tearing up that, po- that, that picture kind of limited her audience in a way that she can kind of finally do what she wants to do and not have to worry about winning a Grammy, not have to worry about selling 10 million albums anymore. She could just continue to do her art. Yeah, and, and I, I will talk about Gordon Lightfoot now. And, and you're right. I mean, you think of the tragically hip, you think of Gordon Lightfoot. It just, I think, obviously, great music, great storytelling. And I think for a lot of people, just unapologetically Canadian, and that's what drew a lot of people to them. And in fact, after the passing of Gordon Lightfoot, we were fortunate enough to have Tom Cochran on this mm. program. This is what he had to say. I've only cried three times when a celebrity has died. You know, one was John Lennon and uh, the other was Leonard Cohen. And with Gordon the other night, uh, when I heard the news, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a melancholy time, you know, and if, if there was a, uh, Canada had a Mount Rushmore, then then Gordon would be be on it. He certainly would be, and but also someone that yeah. transcended Canada and was also very popular in the states. Uh, he and uh, Bob Dylan kind of had a mutual admiration society going for many years. Uh, just an iconic figure. Oh yeah, you know that was the amazing thing about social media is all of these people coming out really really quickly paying tribute to Gordon Lightfoot, everybody from, like you said, Bob Dylan, saying that there were a number of songs that Bob Dylan was insanely jealous that Gordon Lightfoot ended up writing that Bob never wrote. Paul McCartney wrote on social media his love of Gordon's lyrics. Mick Jagger came out um, and with a whole slew of accolades. So it was kind of wild to see that you know, sometimes when people pass away, you're never quite sure how big their obituary is going to be from around the world. But with Gordon Lightfoot, I think we might have underestimated him a little bit with how beloved he was, not only here at home, but around the world, too. Yeah. And what better compliment can an artist get than Bob Dylan saying, every time I hear a Gordon Lightfoot song, I wish it was longer. I mean, <laughs> there, there cannot be a greater compliment than that. Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. You know, and, you know, one person that passed away this year was Robbie Robertson of the band who Bob Dylan had a a long, happy, fruitful relationship with. And even if Robbie Robertson only worked 
in the band, we would still be talking about him. But the fact that after the band dissolved, he ended up working with Martin Scorsese on a number of films, including Raging Bull and The Departed. I mean, his work on soundtracks, his absolute diverse musical influence and storytelling ability really set the tone for some of Hollywood's greatest films of the last 40 years. Absolutely. And again, Robertson's another one that, you know, uh, before his passing, but certainly it, it sort of gets galvanized uh, when word of his passing uh, spreads, just the respect that he had from other artists. Yeah, especially because, you know, when before rock music kind of came into the forefront and, and Bob Dylan picked the band, which was known as, as the Hawks back then, to be his backing band while Bob Dylan was changing the world, going from folk music to rock music, he chose the band to kind of be the sound of the world literally changing overnight. So rock music in general, the music that we love growing up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and even today, would be very, very different if it wasn't for Robbie Robertson. We have uh, a long list to go through, some of them uh, maybe a little bit more contemporary, but we have some uh, some musicians that we lost this year that were, were notable for their their storytelling, for their voices, for their singing, for their stage presence, and for their longevity as well. And let me play among the stars. Tony Bennett, Eric, one of those that uh, that we lost in 2023. Yeah, 19 Grammy Awards, a Kennedy Center honor, one of the great voices since 1950 with songs like I Left My Heart in San Francisco and Rags to Riches. And he was a great painter as well. In fact, a lot of his paintings were exhibited in galleries around the world, just adding another huge dimension to his talent. And he was certainly one that a lot of people missed this year when he passed away. And one that I don't know if it was surprising or not, but one that seemed to garner a whole new audience over time. It wasn't just people who had grown up with Tony Bennett that, that loved him. There were there was seemed to be a whole new generation that came to appreciate his music. Yeah, he ended up having his son, who was like 40 years younger than him, manage him in the 1990s when his career was pretty much stalled. Nobody really was looking at Tony Bennett to be anything other than a nostalgia act. But his son kept watching the show on MTV called Unplugged. And he begged and begged the producers to get Tony on there. He thought that it would be a great idea. And when the program aired, it ended up sending Tony Bennett to the MTV and Much Music Generation, people whose parents weren't even around when Tony Bennett was popular. So that he ended up having a whole second life thanks to music videos. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I watched uh, an unplugged performance of Tony Bennett uh, in preparation for this, and he certainly had a stage presence. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of people in the music industry still continue to to realize that, including Amy Winehouse and Lady Gaga, who he ended up doing a whole two albums of duets with. So certainly having that younger generation of artists um, pay and bow down to the power of Tony Bennett really helped him find, you know, two or three, even four generations of music lovers. Uh, Tina Turner passed away in 2023. Uh, iconic musician, uh, really uh, widespread popularity, uh, probably in the 
80s, maybe most particular, but again, somebody that had a very lengthy career, very, very prominent career, and someone who really had to overcome a lot just to kind of struggle and emerge. Yeah, when you talk about resilience in the music industry, I, 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 a world that is so hard to even crack once, she was able to do it a couple of times, first with her um, ex-husband, uh, Ike Turner, who absolutely just, without a doubt, just abused her to no end, both physically and mentally, and then uh, left with nothing in the late 1970s, but came back with the Private Dancer album, with Simply the Best and What Love Got to Do With It, and she really, truly was the queen of rock and roll then, and uh, went into the 90s with selling out stadiums around the world into a self-imposed retirement, and so when she passed away this year, it was kind of like, wow, like we wonder what she would kind of doing for the last 10 or 15 years, but she deserved all of her peace and serenity and quiet um, because she certainly went through a lot. Shane McGowan, uh, I guess lesser known Celtic punk uh, uh, band breakups. Uh, what strikes you about him? And, and for a lot of people, um, maybe re-familiarize themselves or maybe even familiarize themselves for the first time with him, with his recent passing and this, this this celebration of music at his funeral that everybody just seemed to love. Yeah, you know, the Pogues came up at a time when it was around the same group of people like Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats and a little-known band named U2. So there was a whole bunch of influential folk punk bands that were going around at the same time. And the Pogues were leading that sort of revolution back in Ireland of Irish music and punk rock with really poetic lyrics. And even though that it, they seem to be more of a university band, a lot of people get into them when they get a little bit older, but certainly having that song fairy tale of New York um, heard so many times around this time of the year. Um, and it's set to be the number one song in the UK this holiday season. Well, and we're going to uh, hopefully play a little bit of Fairy Tale of New York coming up as we finish off this segment in just a couple of minutes because it really is, I mean, I could just play that song on repeat uh, all through the Christmas season. It's a different kind of Christmas song, uh, but it is just, a, the, the lyrics, everything about it, I think, is just wonderful. Oh, it's just boozy. I mean, it's just... Yes, it's just, yeah, that is that. <laughs> it's energetic. You can, you can smell the whiskey coming from the grooves of that song whenever you hear it. You know exactly what the state of that entire band was when they recorded that song. Yeah, I, I try not to rush through these, and, uh, and I hope we're doing it justice, but we haven't even talked about Jimmy Buffett yet. Yeah, you know, wherever there's going to be sun and island music, there's going to be Jimmy Buffett. And obviously with his huge song, Margaritaville, that was released in 1977. Um, if, if all, like Robbie Robertson, if all he ever did was that, that would be worthy enough to, to talk about him. But then he had a second life that made him a billionaire, turning that margarita lifestyle into a restaurant chain, a record label. He even wrote more than 10 novels. So he his name isn't just going to be remembered forever on the radio, but all across the sun-soaked kind of areas of America, you're going to be able to stay in a resort, listen to his music, go to eat at the restaurants, and go read his books. It's, it's pretty well, remarkable what he was able to do. I know I wouldn't have a Margaritaville mixer on my deck in the summer if it wasn't for Jimmy <laughs> Buffett, so, so hats off to him for that. Uh, I, I don't know if it's possible in the minute uh, that we have left here, but yeah. is it? can you sum up, uh, if you can, the, what is it about these artists that draws us in uh, the way that it does? Because we just feel so close to them. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think in the last couple of years, certainly in the last decade, the ability to have the music right in front of us at all times is helping remember people like a Harry Belafonte or Lisa Marie Presley, um, people that might not have been on the radio, but we have so easy access to their music and their videos that they've never really left us. And so rather than hoping that the record store, if you can find a record store, has their copy of the greatest hits after they pass away. There's really no need for that anymore. We hear about some personal connection that we have and we can relive it all over again as many times as we want. And I think that's why these artists um, will probably live on long after you and I are around. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, um, it's sad to think that they're gone, but it's also makes me feel really, really happy to know that they're just reaching a whole new audience with, with every passing year. Well put, Eric. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great holiday season. We'll talk soon. And of course, the elephant in the room is that Ben O'Hara Byrne is not here tonight. So I'm sort of like the, the weird relative that only shows up at Christmas and makes everything weird. And I'll try and keep things on the rails a little bit here uh, for the next half hour. But we have, and you hear her every night on this program, Talia Miller, who is our technical producer. Talia, how are you this evening? I'm pretty good, Sid. How are you? I am wonderful, and we also are joined by Kelsey Campbell, who is the boss. She is the executive producer and runs the show. Kelsey, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. It's Christmas time. It is Christmas Happiest time. Happiest time of the year, right? <laughs> it is happy, and uh, and hopefully everybody's happy and healthy and able to uh, able to extend whatever Christmas tradition you may have in your families. And maybe that's where we'll start. Is there anything that either of you feel like you have to do at Christmas time, or it's just not Christmas? I'll take this. Yeah, I actually just. Uh, did one of our many traditions uh, tonight uh, ahead of joining the show. I took my son out Christmas light hunting, and I think many communities have moved in the way of uh, doing the, kind of the tours, the maps, somebody sponsors it. You identify the the 20 or so best Christmas light displays in, in your town. And I literally just burst out crying at this one house. I was so overwhelmed with happiness of the effort they put in. And then the husband and wife were out on the driveway waiting for people to drive by and look at their house. And he was fully decked out as the Grinch, like legit Jim Carrey <laughs> Grinch. And I was worried that my son was going to like lose it. It was, it was a bit terrifying, this guy coming at, at, at her car. And then his wife was just dancing as a, a big gingerbread um, cookie. And it was truly magical and they just stay there and wait for families to come with kids and and roll down the window and he had a package of candies to send us on our way and um it was just really really special my my son's four and it's the first time that he has like the words to be like uh-huh. look at those lights there's santa there's the grinch are you kidding me and <laughs> and then it just became ridiculous where every house even that had no lights on was like check that house out mom it was just uh, it was it was legitimately the most special experience i've had with him uh, during the holidays to date talia oh man i mean the one thing that i'm really hoping for is my mom's always had the tradition of giving me and my brother christmas pjs to wear and she gives it to us like a christmas present on christmas eve and you have to wear them it is mandatory but last year it didn't happen and i was like 
didn't realize how much I love that part of Christmas until last year it didn't happen. So, Mom, if you're listening, (laughs) just a heads up, I would love it if we could do that. I know it's a couple days beforehand, but... The the Christmas Eve, and I'm just an old curmudgeon because I'm kind of set in my ways, and that Christmas Eve thing is a no-go for me. Really? Um, yeah, it's just, uh, and I can actually remember because uh, my wife one year, I don't know that she did it as a kid, but friends of hers did. They got they got pajamas every Christmas Eve. That's what they would get to open. They'd wear them Christmas morning. And so then we got to the point where we had kids and she said, hey, wouldn't this be great? And, you know, they get pajamas on Christmas Eve and it'll be wonderful and it'll be fun. And it'll be, the you know, the first sort of spark in their eyes on Christmas Eve. And uh, And so I said, well, like, I hear what you're saying because, you know, I like to validate. I'm all about validation. But, it, it, you know, Christmas Eve is not Christmas morning, so it's, it's kind of a no-go. And uh, so we didn't do it. <laughs> so you're not wearing a Christmas onesie until Christmas morning if it's given no, to you. No, and that's, uh, I don't know why I'm like that, but I am like that. I just, uh, it, there, you know, Christmas Eve is not Christmas Day. Christmas Day is when we get to open presents. I love Christmas Eve. I love getting together with people. I love celebrating. I love having parties. I just, uh, I'm just not big on opening even one present on Christmas Eve. Interesting. Just... Mm. I immediately think of the conversation you had with uh, former NHLer Rob Brown earlier this week. And my heart just broke hearing how sentimental he is, like, what, 20, 30 years later about having to open all of his Christmas gifts a week ahead of Christmas in a customs office. It just you could hear the devastation to this day in his voice. Yeah, for those for those that didn't hear it, and you may know the name Rob Brown. He played in the NHL for several years. Played with I think he had a hundred and some points playing with Mario Lemieux one year. Spent one Christmas in Russia, uh, which was didn't sound. I mean, it was fun because he was in a uh, World Hockey Championship, but it wasn't fun being in Russia. And as it turned out, you're right, Kelsey. We learned that he just really loves Christmas, and so he's mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh again. Sob, sob story. He's in the NHL at about twenty years old, but he loves Christmas. <laughs> and the thing that the thing that he really loves is the surprise. And that's kind of what I'm about. I, like I just love the yeah. surprise. And as Kelsey was just saying, like he relays that story where his mom sends him all these presents a, a week or week and a half ahead of Christmas time, and he has to go get them at customs or whatever. And and the guy doesn't believe the paperwork or doesn't believe you know the description of what's in the boxes. And so he has to stand there in front of this curmudgeonly security guard, mm. uh, just opening every present that his mom had sent him on December 16th or whatever it happened to be, which would not be a fun experience. So um, I did want to see if we could sneak in a little bit of uh, Christmas trivia here, if you guys are up for it. Love trivia. And, Let's do it. Um, I think they're pretty easy. I think they're pretty cinchy, as the kids would say. Although probably not anymore. <laughs> what does that word what mean? Kids? What generation? <laughs> there are some people listening that will know what I mean when I say these are cinchy. Um, so um, uh, the uh, the auditors dropped these off. So I have I've barely looked at these. I did scan them over. Uh, just a few minutes before uh, we came on air here, I will implore people at home uh, not to wager on this. This is a this is a demonstration that is not a competition. But having said that, between the two of you, who do you think is going to win, Kelsey? I didn't. Uh, thank you. You're most welcome. I'll take it. Merry Christmas. I think okay. I'm just most the most aggressive person on the team. Um, that's probably where Talia is coming from. And it's, that's such a funny thing to say is we're like, let's talk about trivia of Christmas traditions. I will win. This will be cutthroat. Let's do this thing. I'm ready. Okay. So we're going to start off really easy here. 
and you can just jump in. There's no bells, there's no whistles, there's no buzzers. Uh, what did the other reindeer not let Rudolph do because of his shiny red nose? Play another reindeer games? Close. Oh, no. Oh, man, I feel like I need to sing the song. To sing the song. No, I can't. I'm not going to do that on national they never radio. Let poor Ru- they never let poor Rudolph join in any, play reindeer, in any reindeer games. Jo- join in any reindeer games. Oh, I think Natalia got that one. So uh, I'm not really keeping score, but Talia's up one nothing, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even though it took a little bit to get there. Okay, Remember we'll stay. Moment. We will stay with. What are we going to do here? We'll stay with reindeer. Which one of Santa's reindeer has the same name as another? Holiday mascot. Oh. So if you think of the name of the reindeer. Oh my gosh, Zed. Can I ask the questions and can you answer this? It's, <laughs> okay, here, here, I'll give you guys a hint. Okay, listen very closely. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen. Comet. Cupid. Okay. Cupid. Oh, it wasn't Valentine. a Christmas mascot, but it was another holiday mascot. So, mm. yeah, so we are now... We are now tied at one in the non-competitive Man, Christmas. Christmas, the answer. We can't do it. You're both doing amazing. Oh, thank like, you. Did you write these questions? <laughs> okay, we're we're going to take a break. We'll come back. Collect Great yourselves, idea. ladies. Collect really yourselves. We'll come back and we'll finish up. You're listening to Christmas trivia on a little more conversation. Uh, we're talking Christmas traditions, throwing in a little bit of non-competitive Christmas trivia, of which we are now tied at one uh, between Kelsey and Talia. And uh, uh, you guys are doing so well on Christmas songs. I hate to move away from it. We may circle back and do a couple more in a little bit, but I think we're going to do a little bit of Christmas mu- movie trivia. Uh, do you guys have any particular favorite Christmas movies movies that you like? I think we just heard one that definitely moved at the top of the list very quickly in the in the mm-hmm. form of Elf. I don't know if there's – no Christmas Vacation is probably the most quoted Christmas movie of all time. But do you get through a single holiday without hearing, Santa, I know the hymn, right? Like I feel like you hear that so many times every single season thanks to Elf. Yeah, it is a great movie. It's one of those ones where – I mean, I don't know. I don't, I'm sure some people maybe don't care for it as much, but I've never heard anybody criticize that movie. There are some people that don't like the classics or don't like Christmas Vacation even, but uh, Elf seems to be universally uh, universally enjoyed, I think, at this time of year. Talia, do you have one? I really love watching uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer every year. Ah. <laughs> you really should have nailed that question then uh, I, I enjoy it i just i don't retain any information watching it <laughs> it's just on and i enjoy it um, the edge and everything yeah <laughs> this is a little bit inside baseball but uh in, we had a brief conversation off air during the break and i think talia's answer to one of those questions the cupid was going to be gritty and she caught herself at the last moment she heard the word mascot and was thinking nhl mascot <laughs> So, or NFL uh, somebody. I was like, who do I know? Sorry to have to out you there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, okay, so uh, we'll do a little bit of movie trivia here. And this one might be unfair, but maybe not. Uh, it is a classic. Oh, no. Um, and it's... Uh, <laughs> Christmas is already stressful enough. Can we be honest? <laughs> like, when I say happiest okay, time of okay, the year... Okay, before like... I get to that... Okay, before I get to that... This, you, so this one, you just... 
This one you just have to guess at. Which country invented eggnog? Ukraine. Nope, not Ukraine. Easier than that. Canada. Close. <laughs> Very close. The United States. Not that close. <laughs> oh my goodness. Greenland. Oh no. <laughs> I feel like Do we, we get a hint? Options. The yeah, UK. Need... The hint is you should you should be able to guess this even if uh, like just guess a country. That that cool. Mexico. Guess a country that generally speaks the same language as us, but is not Canada or the United States. The UK. Brilliant. All right. Two yeah. one. Guess. All right. That's <laughs> no I said joy. The UK. <laughs> oh, you said the UK. Okay. I, I said I said it a second ago. I didn't you did. I did. And Kelsey was going to let me give her the point. I that legitimately didn't hear you. I, I think you must have muted yourself, Talia. I'm just going to. I will ahead go and give back into the, the logger. I will grab the receipts. <laughs> okay, so that was that was maybe the easiest question we'll have all night. England <laughs> oh, invented dear. eggnog. In okay. the movie, Thank it's them. a wonderful. In the movie, it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. What happened every time a bell rang? An angel got its wings. Who just said that? Kelsey. Oh, that's right. That's right. Boy, okay, it is on now. That was mm. that was brilliant. It was fast. You must watch I've, that movie a lot. I've never seen it. <laughs> uh, you were just in the, the trivia truth. contest last night where that came up. No, I just I feel like that's also that's a common that's a common line. Why do I know that? I feel like that's just a part of the holidays. You say that. I know the Every line. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. I know that line. I'm not sure I would have gotten the movie that quickly, though. Mm-mm. So good on you. Okay. Uh, let's continue on the vein of classic movies. In The Grinch Who Stole eggnog. Christmas. You're drinking eggnog right now? A little bit of rum, and I think I'm just starting oh. to get a little bit of confidence here. That's what's <laughs> happening. That's allowed. That's allowed. Oh, no, I'm That's screwed. Allowed. Here we go. Now we're on a roll. Okay. In the classic movie, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And you were just referencing the Grinch not long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Grinch was the Grinch was described with three words. What are they? Oh, the Grinch was described with three words. Three words. <laughs> I have. They all start with the letter content. S. They all start with the letter S. Uh, st. They all have. They all start with st. This isn't going to help anybody. If you don't no. know, you don't know. No. And you don't know. I'm, okay. I'm thinking like, I feel like there's probably a certain spot. This isn't the opening sequence, right? This is somewhere else in the movie? You're talking to the wrong literally... guy. I just, I just ask the questions. Okay, the auditors hand me the questions. The auditors hand me the questions. I ask them. Okay, here's, here's something that's crazy. I have been watching The Grinch every single night because my son is recently obsessed and I don't know the answer to this question. <laughs> I don't know Okay, either. well, when you, when you hear the answer, then you'll be kicking yourself. The three words that best describe oh. you are as follows, and I quote, stink, stank, stump. You're a rotter. Now, does that ring a bell now that you hear it or no? 
No. You missed yeah. that part. You've fallen asleep by that part. <laughs> no, I'm watching. I, this is a twist. I'm watching the newest one. That and it's not even the Jim Carrey one. It's the 2018 one with oh, Benedict Cumberbatch. So nice. And uh, it it they broke it. They it's not really Doctor Seuss. You know, it's it's uh, narrated by Pharrell Williams, and they just kind of went rogue. <laughs> <laughs> so. Not okay. top of mind, but that brought it all back. Sorry, Sid. That was an easy question, and I let you down. Okay, I'm going to give you guys a couple of seconds here to run a song through your minds. 12 Days of Christmas. Okay. Everybody knows 12 Days of Christmas. Well, we hope. Just start, start circulating it through the mind, because yeah. I'm going to ask you a question related to 12 Days of Christmas. Mm-hmm. How are we doing? Are we feeling confident? So confident. <laughs> Why wouldn't Very we be confident? confident? We've been nailing it okay. so far. <laughs> In the 12 days of Christmas, what are there eight of? In the 12 days of Christmas, not turtle turtle, doves. Three turtle doves. In the 12 (laughs) days of Christmas, what are there eight of? I thought it might go better than this. In the 12 days of Christmas. Hold on, it's kind of, I was gonna. It's, uh, Dahlia's humming not, it. Two. It's not even three turtle doves. It's two turtle doves. <laughs> Forget about turtle Seven doves. Get like white turtle doves. Nine ladies okay. dancing. Why can't I think of eight? You went from seven lords Geese are giving. Eight maids a milking. What was the question? Got it. You got it. So I think, <laughs> although I haven't really been able to well, that's wrong. Attention to follow this, any of this, it might be uh, might be Kelsey up by three two in the non competition. Well, a good thing it's not a competition. <laughs> it is not a competition. It is only merely an exhibition. Please, no wagering at home. And we have, <laughs> I believe. Oh my goodness! Well, we have one more. You know what? I'm going to do one more that might be slightly difficult. And then we'll we'll end it on maybe the easiest one ever. Bring and it on. And we'll put everybody in a good mood. Okay. Thank you. What is the name of the snowman? Now, Talia, Frosty. this is not a mascot. <laughs> Thank what is you the for name clarification. <laughs> of the snowman in the song Winter Wonderland? What is the name oh, of the snowman? Not Frosty. In the song Winter Wonderland. And we will call. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to get it. Um, I know. Oh, I know. Oh, we're putting yes, you do. on the spot um, here. It, uh, Parson Brown. In the meadow, we oh. can build a snowman and pretend that he's Parson Brown. He'll say, "Are you married?" We'll say, "No." I was no not man. expecting a correct answer there, so that is wonderful. So Good I think you, that Kelsey. is now. That is a bit of an insurmountable lead because you're up four two. We have one question left, <laughs> but I will ask it because it is very easy. By the way, thanks for coming on. And I do hope you both have wonderful Christmases. You too, Sid. Um, Elvis isn't going to have... Very good guy. Elvis is not going to have a white Christmas. He is going to have a blank Christmas. Blue Christmas. Sorry, Talia. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I thought we were going from easy to hard, but I think I think I did it in reverse. I should have looked <laughs> sure <did>. them over <laughs> a little more carefully. I think I think I started on a little uh, a little tough, and uh, we loosened her up uh, near the end. So 
Uh, thanks, for <laughs> thanks for playing along. Thanks for playing along, both to our executive producer, Kelsey Campbell, and our technical producer, Talia Miller. And thanks if you're playing along at home. Uh, text us. Let us know how you did. Maybe you did better than we did. But it's very tough, as everybody knows. It's one thing to be sitting at home and answering trivia questions. It's another to be under the bright studio lights with the pressure on, all eyes on you, and have to come up with uh, the name Cupid on the spot. So. Uh, Look thank how you're you. softening the blow. I love it. Like, it's okay. They did terrible, but it's not easy for them. They've got it hard. <laughs> it's Christmas. It's, it's Christmas, and we have to be just very generous. warm and fuzzy. Um, so I think a lot of people are familiar with this because it's the kind of story I think that it, I mean, if you're even if you're scrolling and you just you kind of see a headline, you say, "Wait, what? What?" What was that? What was that about whales? What was that about conversations? What was that about extraterrestrials? So can you maybe start from the start? What led up to this experiment and and what did you guys find? Well, um, the basic idea is, you know, often scientists go to Antarctica because it's good practice for Mars. The dry valleys have frozen lakes and that sort of thing. And it occurred to us some years ago that um, we have millions of communication systems that are non-human on Earth. And uh, if we're going to develop intelligence filters for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, then um, we should be practicing on intelligence here on Earth. And, of course, bottlenose dolphins is where we started, and we've kind of progressed now to humpback whales. Uh, humpback whales do not accommodate themselves to humans as much as bottlenose dolphins. So the basic idea was uh, I'm an astrophysicist with the SETI Institute, radio astronomy, uh, astrophysics, that sort of thing, but also information theory. And the basic idea was we, um, we recorded some humpback whale vocalizations, and we had a hypothesis that we had a greeting call among the signals we recorded. When we played this greeting call, a certain whale turned around that we knew uh, from the tail fluke ID, turned around and um, started to say hello back. So we had about a 20-minute conversation with about 36 back-and-forth words, and it was mostly hi, 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 where the whale matched our timing. And um, so it really was more like a very, very simple preliminary conversation. But humpback whales aren't known to respond to humans particularly that way, where you say hello and they're surprised, turn around, circle the boat and say hello and stick around for 20 minutes. And our permit limited us to playbacks for only 20 minutes. So we had to truncate the conversation, but the humpback whale kept vocalizing it was kind of pitiful, um, you know, because we had to break off. But mm. it was very, it it high, it kind of pointed out how, you know, an extraterrestrial signal we wouldn't be prepared for it without practice like this. So you have this hypothesis that that, that this this sound is a greeting sound, and you play it. What was that moment like? as a researcher and, and as this team that's sort of devoted so much time and energy to this and you think it might work, you think it might respond, you're hoping it might respond. And then in the moment it does like, like what's, what are you feeling when, when you see that whale turn around and respond in that way? 
Yeah, the team generally said it was a li- once-in-a-lifetime experience. I hope it isn't, but that uh, something weighs 50 tons and, you know, uh, goes to Hawaii for mating and back to Alaska. These are global travelers. And, you know, they're up there, feet, you know, feeding. That's what they do in Alaska. And that they would turn around, take time out and say, did somebody say hello, you know? It's kind of, uh, it's gratifying and it's uh, unique in humpback whale, uh, people's experiences with humpback whales. And so when you have these permits and you said you can only uh, converse with the whale or attempt to converse with the whale for a certain amount of time, is just is just that simply so it, it doesn't get disturbed in its habitat for a too long a period of time? Yes. Yeah, that was the idea to protect the whale. But the whale uh, started to go away when we didn't respond and and um, sent the greeting call and then waited 41 seconds and sent another greeting call and then sent the third greeting call as it headed away. So it was kind of like, we're sorry, we have these moments, you see. (laughs) And the whale is saying, hey, guys, where are you going? We just got started here. (laughs) Exactly. Wouldn't you like to learn to say something other than hi? (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, can you say, do you have other calls that are something other than a greeting? And I don't know what that might be, but like, are there other tones or, or you know, portions yes. of, of this whale language that you've picked up on? Well, the whales in Alaska, uh, they make nets out of bubbles. And they're cylindrical nets. And as they rise, the other whales, they coordinate underwater. And the whole bubble netting team herds herring into that cylindrical bubble constituted um, net and then they come up underneath it with their mouths open and that's how they catch herring they they use these giant bubble nets well when they're done for the day they do what a colleague of mine up in alaska calls the farewell ceremony all the humpback whales head in different directions and breach that means they clear the water and it's pretty dramatic when you have 40, 50 tons clearing the water. And they splash down, and then the next time they do it, they're another half mile away and so on. And they head in different directions. And while they do that, they make a sound that sounds a little bit like uh, ee, ee, ee. And we hypothesize that that is a farewell or see you back here tomorrow kind of call. Talking about the story that made headlines around the world uh, this week, with uh, a conversation, and this was an experiment that was done in partnership with CETA, the University of California, Davis, and the Alaska Whale Foundation. They sent what they were pretty sure might be a whale greeting into the water with a humpback whale, and indeed it turned around and sent a similar sound back, a similar greeting back. And you can imagine how thrilled uh, these scientists and researchers would be to discover that it worked, and we may be onto something here, and we may be able to communicate with other beings here on Earth. And I'm curious, Lawrence, uh, how this information and how these sort of studies may be applied uh, as we look to maybe contact people that are not on this Earth. Well, the um, search for extraterrestrial intelligence has usually been done in the radio. And when you tune onto a radio station, if you turn the dial, you're on a new station. And so there's a narrow carrier wave. It carries the message but the, the carrier itself has a very narrow band signal. And SETI has usually depended on searching for radio signals that are very narrow. However, they haven't 
examine the message itself. In other words, you tune onto a radio channel, but you're, you're not analyzing what is on that channel. And what we've started to do, applying information theory, is to develop intelligence filters for the search based on our bottlenose dolphin and humpback whale. Um, the similarities in the mathematical distribution of human languages we can apply, and we've discovered a number of similarities in humpback, and including what we call in human language syntax, but they're conditional probabilities between signals. And so we've discovered that in humpbacks, and we've now discovered how to greet them and um, they're, they're, they take interest in us. So it's basically um, studying non-human intelligence deprovincializes our thought about what intelligence is. And um, the mathematics guides our progress. So we're pretty careful. We're not just, well, everybody knows they're intelligent. Well, you know, proving that mathematically is a different matter. And this is the first paper of its kind. It went through the refereeing process and we wouldn't have held this, uh, these press conferences until it was accepted into the scientific refereed literature. So this then, does this give us, are you saying, when if, if we're listening to what's out there in the universe, that some of the things that you're learning now will just help you interpret what those sounds may be indicating? Yes. Um, basically, information theory is, is not about so much interpretation. It's not so much what you are saying as what you could say. So we can measure directly now with a couple intelligence filters we've developed. We can measure the, you might call it syntax, and we can say, how complex is this language? Will you, will it, is it as complex as human? Is it more complex or less complex? And humpback whales are a good place to start because we know they're intelligent. They have complex networks. They make bubble nets. They, you know, have very complex songs. They have, uh, they put most of their information into audio. Uh, you know, people say, how about chimpanzees? Well, we'll get to them, but they have gestures and facials. So it complicates things. But um, so we started with bottlenose dolphins. They're captive. And now we've kind of graduated to a, a species that, you know, they obviously cared enough to turn around and come talk to us, but we don't dictate anything about them. They are 50 tons and they roam the ocean and when they're feeding, they're busy. So this, this indicates that's also a kind of extra curiosity. Hmm. What was that? And it, we, we emphasize that the humpback was not thinking of us as another humpback. It's like, what is this that's saying hello? Right. And so we're, it was, it was very like as if a SETI signal is received. And we all realized that we have a lot of homework to do before we can distinguish an intelligent signal from a non-human. Here's a mammal around, born around the, on the same planet, around the same star. We get a signal from space. We can expect real alien. And humpback whales are alien enough so that this is good practice, but also, you know, mammal-like and terrestrial enough to help us learn. So I well, Lawrence, I, the right species. It, it sounds like it, and I would not pretend to understand all the complexities of how you arrive at your hypotheses and how you how you conduct these studies, but I can certainly uh, share in the excitement 
of of the end result of 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 the the image of a whale turning around and and responding to a greeting of hello and what that must have felt like we appreciate your time today uh, a wonderful story i think it brought smiles to a lot of people's faces uh, this week and uh, oh, thanks good. for coming on the program with us well it was a pleasure good questions thank you very much <laughs> Right now, though, we wanted to kind of change things up a little bit and talk about Christmas movies. That's something we haven't done. Uh, we're joined by our resident pop culture expert, Steve Stebbing, for this. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Sid. Uh, it's wonderful that you could uh, join us tonight, and I'm not even quite sure where to start because there's there's such mm. a so much that we could talk about when it comes to Christmas movies. Maybe I'll start. Uh, do you have any go-tos? Do you have any favorites that you find yourself gravitating to at this time of year? Oh, I mean, there's like, I, I love going off the beaten path, of course, but there are, you know, the staples. Like, uh, I mean, I just got Scrooged on 4K Blu-ray like a month ago. And that's one that I've loved for a really long time. Like Bill Murray in a kind of skewed modern at the time take on A, uh, a Christmas Carol uh, done by Richard Donner, who I mean, did Goonies and Lethal Weapon and a bunch of other movies. Lethal Weapon also being a Christmas movie as well. Okay, um, here we go. Yeah, exactly. There's all the tie-ins here. But, I mean, I love Elf, uh, of course, uh, Christmas Vacation. Like, there are the honest staples. But I like pulling things that are a little different and maybe kind of mash in the genre because there's like a monster movie called Krampus that came out probably about six, seven years ago, which is a lot of fun with a lot of cool practical effects and everything. Um, and then, of course, like I'm a diehard guy and it's the debate that comes up every year if it's being a Christmas movie. The writer said it was a Christmas movie, so I'm inclined to believe that guy. The writer said it was, it was a Christmas movie, but didn't Bruce yes. Willis say this? Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Now, did he recant that at any point? That's the start no. of the show right there, he ha- Steve. He, he hasn't recounted it, but we have to remember, said that Bruce is just paid to say the lines. He's not the guy that came <laughs> up with the ideas. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I think somebody described, uh, we were talking about this debate about is is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? And somebody referred to it as Christmas adjacent. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll saw it off at that. Um, interesting. <laughs> you brought up the movie Scrooge with Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that, knowing that you were coming on today. So, and, and this is just a, a bit of an offbeat story. I wasn't even sure I was going to bring it up, but you, you kind of triggered a thought. So it's released, I think late eighties, 88, 89, somewhere along there. Clear, clearly a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Now, the song Put a Little Love in Your Heart, which was originally released and was a hit in the late 60s, uh, they did a remake of that. Annie Lennox and Al Green, that was included in the soundtrack to Scrooge. Yeah. And since then, so I can remember going to see Scrooge in the theater at Christmas time. I must have heard that song, the original, somewhere along the line, but I fell in love with it, uh, the remake in that movie. And to this day, I consider Put a Little Love in Your Heart a Christmas song. It's on my Christmas playlist on Spotify. Uh, when I'm talking with friends about what kind of music we listen to at Christmas time, it's always something I mention. Completely not a Christmas movie. I think it was released in the summer and hit the charts in like August of 1969. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's a Christmas song. Yeah, you know, it just, and, and maybe again, it's like you were talking about before, it's Christmas adjacent 
too. Like it's just, it's kind of like meshed into something so Christmas related that it just kind of seems to absorb the flavor of the holiday season. Yeah. And it's a fun, it's upbeat. It's, Mm -hmm. I mean, the the name of the song is put a little love in your heart. How could it not be about Christmas? Anyway, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll park that there for a bit. So, so you kind of run the gamut and and, I like the fact that you bring up some movies that maybe aren't as, uh, you know, in our face and on everybody's Mm -hmm. radar because you know, sometimes what we like to do is give people maybe a little bit of uh, some tips about if they want to seek out something, because sometimes even if we love movies, you know, it gets a little repetitive. And mm-hmm. sometimes we think, well, there's just there's just not a lot of other options out there. But but there are, aren't there? Oh, there is. There is one actually that's in theaters right now. Um, it's called The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti. And uh, it's directed by Alexander Payne, and it's very, very much reminiscent of like a like an old Hal Ashby movie, like the same guy that made Harold and Maude in being there. But I mean, it is completely immersed in the Christmas season. Um, maybe not as like the spirit of Christmas infused in this story, but it is kind of like in the trenches of Christmas. So I totally think it's a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elf is the one, and I know you, you already mentioned that, but that's mm-hmm. one that, uh, I mean, we did a segment earlier with uh, a couple of our producers on the program, and as soon as you mention, you know, favorite Christmas movies, that gets brought up. And I think it, it tends to get brought up regardless of uh, the age of, of the people that we're conversing with. Uh, you know, some people say, I like classics, but I also like Elf. Or some people, you know, I, I just like the, the real, you know, raunchy Christmas uh, comedy movies. But yeah, I, I also like Elf. It, it, there's something universal about that movie it seems and there's something timeless about it too because i i don't think it resides in any sort of generational like that is locked to a generation at all i think that kind of the, the precociousness of it can be explored by any age and i i mean it's arguably one of will ferrell's greatest performances um as, as far as a comedic performance goes as far as a pop culture performance goes and um and this is also a movie that now for a lot of people is the kickoff to their holiday season so uh yeah elf is elf is one of those special films that you don't realize how special it is until the season rolls around absolutely what about home alone home alone and that that's a one that's kind of uh kind of uh, like really part of my childhood experience. And it's funny because you started the segment with rocking around the Christmas tree. And that immediately reminds me of home alone uh, with where he's trying to make the house look like it's full of people and everything that song's mm-hmm. playing there. And uh, yeah, I, I mean the wet bandits, there's just so much, so much about that film that uh, I mean, and the filmmaker behind it, Chris Columbus, he's kind of like a part of my formative years in loving films. So of course, home alone is definitely part of that. And it's 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 great, I think, in the sense that uh, obviously there's some there's villains in the movie, mm-hmm. but the way the movie is is written and produced with, I don't even know if I'm I'm going to say it the right way, but they're villains. But because of all the antics and because of all the shenanigans, it, they they don't come across as particularly uh, scary or threatening if you're watching it with young children. No, and it's, I, I think that comes down to the to the writing, and this is something that John Hughes was really, really good at, is no matter what kind of character you are, there is still something about each character that is intriguing or likable. And yeah, I, I mean, you're not supposed to, you know, like 
Joe Pesci or Daniel Stern in these movies, but you kind of do love them in their villainy ways and in the antics between the two, because they are such an irreplaceable piece of that film. And it, it just goes to the core of how great of a writer John Hughes was. Yeah, because they're villains, mm-hmm. and yet every time you see them, you're laughing. You're either laughing because of what's happening to them. You're laughing because of the facial expressions. So it it, it just is a it's just different that way. And you're right, brilliant writing, I guess, can do that. Make us even if we even if we're not necessarily cheering for the villains, we're also not you know hoping you know they get they get killed off. <laughs> No, exactly. And you're excited to see them when Kevin got lost in New York a couple of years later. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you, like, where do you come down on some of, some of the remakes of these, what we would now consider Christmas classics? Uh, well, I, sequel, we're, I mean, you know, two lost in New York is kind of where we stop with, with the, uh, with home alone. Cause home alone three, I know there's a generation that really has a, a, like a soft spot for that one. I'm not part of that generation. It didn't really work. And then they did a Home Alone, like, kind of, like, redo uh, for Disney Plus, I want to say last year. And it was just awful, just purely, purely awful. But, I mean, yeah, like, Christmas Carol is something that gets um, kind of targeted every few years. There's so many remakes. Uh, The most recent one being that uh, Ryan Reynolds and – Will Ferrell film Spirited for Apple TV Plus, which is passable, but there's nothing about it that's going to make it memorable. Not, nothing is that that original um, Christmas Carol or or the like, you know, or the, even Muppet Christmas Carol. They kind of like leveled out with that one because that's a go to for me. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. And when I when I always think of Christmas movies, like I think of some of the franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, whether they're, you know, I mean, they could be Lethal Weapon or Rambo. I don't know why I'm thinking of those particular genres. But at some point, that's fine because that's just the kind of movies they are. And if you can make a franchise out of it and if you can make two or three or four, I'm not really big on the on the, uh, on the the superhero movies in particular and so, mm-hmm. on some of the sequels there. But I always find with Christmas music or with Christmas uh, movies, I always think there's, I always wonder why there's, I mean, obviously to make money, but other than that, like, there's no need to have a sequel because we're willing to watch these movies. We only watch them, generally speaking, one month out of the year. And so we're willing to watch them year after year after year. We don't really, we're not really craving an update. No, and you know, unless you're a giant studio and you have some sort of Christmas-related IP that you're trying to um, milk for everything that it's got, whether, you know, because we've seen... Uh, a live action adaptation of The Grinch with Jim Carrey. And then we saw Illumination Entertainment, the guys behind the Despicable Me movies, uh, do an animated version with Benedict Cumberbatch probably three or four years ago. And uh, I mean, the same rings true for like Disney with their Santa Claus movies in the early, the late 90s, early 2000s. Now they have the series on, on Disney Plus. But there's only certain, there's only so much that you can balloon up of these characters you we don't see a frosty the snowman franchise at this point we don't see you know there's not a little drummer boy series that comes every christmas like there's just certain things that they're not touching so look daddy teacher says every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings that's right that's right 
Attaboy, Claire. It's a Wonderful Life, which, uh, I mean, there are there are a lot of people that insist that that is the all-time classic. Uh, there are there are there are many others, though. But uh, what's your view of, uh, of 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 that movie? I mean, it's a total classic for sure, and it's one that uh, the studios, as far as like home video goes, they keep releasing and re-releasing. I think over the years, Paramount sent me a Blu-ray and a 4K and like a steelbook. They love putting that movie out because they know that people are going to pick it up. But uh, I mean, it is like a quintessential Christmas movie. It's weird. There's something that is probably because I saw it when I was really young, but Saturday Night Live did a parody of It's a Wonderful Life, they did like an extended cut version. It was in the years where Kevin Nealon and John Lovitz and Dana Carvey and that cast was on it. And every time I think about It's a Wonderful Life, I always go to that sketch and it just kind of blurs in my brain. I had forgotten all about that sketch until you just brought it up. <laughs> I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go and seek that out later tonight because I'm with you. That was that was funny when uh, when they mm-hmm. were able to pull that off. Uh, and you know, so so there are the classics. There's sort of the more contemporary ones, and then there's a there's a genre of movies. Uh, I don't know if they're all Hallmark classics, but at this time of year, um, there are channels that are nonstop Christmas movies. They tend to play a lot in my house, and whenever I walk into the room, uh, and I, I know it gets old, but I I always ask the same question: Which one is the aspiring journalist that moved back to her hometown, and which one is the the one that owns the struggling bake shop? Because uh, yeah. yeah. it always seems to be kind of similar, but those are really popular too. Yeah, and they always I mean they turn them out like crazy. They're all basically shot in British Columbia uh all the time because it's either you know they, they shoot them a lot in the you know the vancouver area or the okanagan as well they love to do that and i mean personally i have friends that have worked on these films both in front of the camera and behind the camera so i can't yuck anybody's yum on this one um but yeah i don't really get it i i don't like it is like you said Sid. it is it is predictable it hits the, all the, the points that you expect it to hit. And doing all the movie reviews that I do over over a year and everything, some good and some bad, to know that it's objectively going to be terrible is <laughs> even less enticing than you would think. See, and, and I'm not someone who's uh, like a, a critic, and I say like in terms of a professional critic that has to review these things. So when, mm-hmm. I, when I say, you know, and, and just kind of talk about how formulaic they are. I'm not even really trying to be critical. Like for me, if it makes someone happy and that's what they like, it's, it's, it's like someone's taste in music, you know, uh, for me to try and convince someone that they shouldn't like country music, they should like punk rock or they should, you know, whatever it is, if it brings a smile to your face, mm-hmm. uh, then so be it. But, but yeah, the, the, it is kind of a mill that they pump these out with. Well, for sure, because everybody's taste is subjective and everything. So there are people that um, the, the, that are the built-in audience for this one. So, uh, yeah, I just I, I find a really hard time finding a foothold even in the first five, ten minutes of any of them. Okay, and so if we were going to, to, uh, to uh, spy on you over the next few days, are there any movies that you've got loaded up that you're definitely going to get to that you haven't already this Christmas season? 
well, I mean, I, at the top of it, I used the Christmas break to, to really catch up on all the stuff I've kind of missed over the year. But my definite staple Christmas movies, again, are going to be off the beaten path. One of them is a David Lowry film called The Green Knight uh, with Dev Patel um, that is a very strange uh, medieval journey that happens to take place at Christmas. So people might see that as Christmas adjacent. I'm really loving that term right now, so I'm really using it a lot. Um, I haven't heard of that movie before. Oh, it's and it's gorgeous to look at. Um, And then, again, I like something a little harder edge. There's a film that came out last year called Violent Night, and it has David Harbour playing a a hard-drinking Santa that has basically almost given up on, on every on the whole Christmas season, given you know Amazon and video games and all the things that have basically made people disconnected from the world. And while he's de- delivering presents to a mansion, that mansion gets taken over by bad guys, and he has to save the family within the within the house. And it is violent; it is out of control. And David Harbour plays such a charming Santa that it became a, an easy Christmas classic for me. Uh, one that I just thought of that, that I'm going to have to watch because I haven't watched it yet this Christmas, and it's certainly not overly deep. But uh, I have come to really enjoy the movie Four Christmases. Uh, I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that, like the setup and the premise and then just some of the, just some of the weird antics of the various families as you kind of go through the course of the movie. So I'm going to put that on my playlist this weekend. Yeah. John Favreau as the MMA brother, uh, he's probably steals (laughs) the film for me. Yeah. That probably is the best scene other than, I mean, I just really appreciate them getting caught in the airport, going on vacation when, uh, they're supposed to be uh, telling their family for years that they go and volunteer for those less fortunate. I, I just love that. I love everything about that movie. Uh, Steve, it's been a wonderful conversation, a great time of year just to kind of sit down and, and talk about Christmas mu- movies, those that have been around for years and maybe those that are coming out uh, recently. And, uh, and thanks for kind of maybe uh, pointing people in the direction of some lesser known movies as well tonight. Thanks for coming on. I love doing it. And thanks for having me on said. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.